0: Amazon founder and CEO Jeff Bezos recently gained headlines, not for his messy divorce, potential antitrust legislation against big tech or anything of that sort, but rather because he became one of the first private citizens to go into space based on ventures in that field that he has been backing. Complaints, criticisms, and all kinds of other nonsense has flowed from this. Mostly people complaining about the fact that Jeff Bezos is very rich and that he decided to spend his money on going into space rather than digging wells in third world countries, etc. Some of these criticisms are a little off base. Some of them seem based on envy and some of them may have a point but are missing the broader point, which is that governments have largely failed to capitalize on the benefits of space. Private sector is starting to move into that area and that's probably a good thing for all of us for a number of reasons. I'm Dr. Nolte, and this is Blind Politics. And welcome, podcast listeners, to a, another somewhat political and mostly just very nerdy episode of Blind Politics with Dr. Nolte. I am Dr. AJ Nolte. Assistant Professor of Government at Regent University's Robertson School of Government, and Chair of our new Master's Program in International Development. If, unlike Jeff Bezos, you are interested in spending your time, treasure, resources, etc., on development uh, development in the third world, then Regent's new Master's Program in International Development is for you, so check that out. Please remember that you can uh, rate and subscribe to this podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, or your favorite podcast provider. You can find us on Facebook at Blind Politics with Dr. Nolte or through the Robertson School of Government's Facebook and Instagram feeds. And once again, the views expressed on this podcast with the exclusion of that plug for the International Development Degree do not represent those of either Regent University or the Robertson School of Government. I'm pretty sure that everybody would agree with me here at Regent and at RSG that you should check out our International Development Degree. Anyway, that being said, I want to talk today about the final frontier, namely space. It's probably no secret to those of you who've known me for a while that I'm something of a nerd for space, and that this is the sort of thing that I, I am very intrigued by. I have had, until this year, for a variety of reasons, but until this year, I annually would do a sort of science fiction event at Regent, and of course we did a podcast on aliens not that long ago, so this is like not a huge surprise for those who are fans of the pod. But... What we haven't really talked about as much are the politics surrounding these private space ventures. You could think about, you know, Elon Musk, Jeff Bezos, Richard Branson, all these types of folks that are, are you know trying to build up this private space industry. Okay, I want to say a couple of things here that are perhaps a little bit controversial. And, and that would cut maybe against the tenor of some of the other things I've written. I've been a big crit- critic in some ways of big tech because I think that they're walking into a buzzsaw of populist rage and they have absolutely no idea because they all live in this sort of insulated left-wing elite progressive bubble. And that seems like a, a particularly poor policy, right? But technology in and of itself isn't bad. And a lot of the things that the big tech companies bring us are good. Not so sure about Twitter. We could probably live as a society without Twitter. Full disclosure, not on Twitter. But, you know, you look at a lot of the other things, the ability to record this podcast, my ability as a blind person to do the work that I do is enabled by technology. So I'm not anti technology. I have some concerns about the monoculture that exists in in that sort of environment where a lot of the technology uh, companies are based and, and not necessarily diversity of the way people look, but the way people think. And that's partially political. That's what we focus on. But, you know, I think there's also, to a certain extent, People in that tech field tend to think in similar ways, you know, certain types of people with certain types of of minds and mindsets go into that. And that doesn't necessarily fully represent their user base. And the same, of course, goes for politics. That being said, I am not going to criticize Bezos on this one. And I'm not going to criticize Elon Musk on this one. I'm not going to criticize any of the other billionaires that are trying to do stuff in space on this one. And it's not just because I personally think space is cool. And you know if i had the kind of money would i be doing what they're doing <laughs> absolutely yes i would probably be spending it on other philanthropic causes as well but you know there's there's lots of different things that you can go around and by the way it's not like jeff bezos is spending every dime on this right we have this idea that you know money is fungible and it's a small pie and all these types of things this is an investment for bezos he's not just doing this because he thinks it's cool he's doing this because he thinks it's going to make him money in the long run okay you know, it's not charity work. It's not, he's just throwing this away as a dilettante. He thinks that there's money in this. Elon Musk thinks that there is money in this. Richard Branson thinks there is money in this. Okay. So we're, people are are sort of putting this in the, if. well, if they weren't doing this, they would be, you know, investing in, you know, all these philanthropic causes or giving their money to the poor. No, the way guys at that level operate is they tend to have, you know, sort of a charity slash philanthropic bucket and an investment bucket. And so we need to, first of all, focus this on, part of their investment strategy, the strategy for growing growing wealth and advancing technology, is going towards space. And Bezos himself is also a big space believer. He told us that in his high school graduation speech when he said, I want to help colonize space. Okay. Side note, I have a conspiracy theory that a lot of the ways in which he structured Amazon is sort of designed for that. You know, the, the idea that you ha- that everything has to fit in certain packaging requirements to go on Amazon, right? This, this st- extreme standardizing of packaging shipping. Yeah, it's easier for them in a lot of ways in terms of inventory. It's also the kind of thing you got to do if you got to send supplies up or down a gravity well, right? You could see how that would be useful. Other types of, of management approaches that they have. I'm wondering if that's part of like what he has in the back of his mind, but I, I'm I'll, I'll leave that for there. That's just sort of my own private speculation. But so... First of all, these guys think there's money in this. And why do they think there's money in this? Well, because they're probably banking on the fact that people like to go do new things and people like to have new experiences. And particularly experiences that are really unusual, really, really unusual. The ability to stand in space and look down and see the planet below you is a highly unusual experience. It's sort of a novelty factor. And they're betting that two things. One, they can bring the transport costs down eventually, because this type of thing is not the sort of, of you know, you just make a lot of money from a couple of rich dudes doing this. Like that's not gonna work, right? The goal is to make this sustainable enough that people on middle class salaries can afford to take a space trip. That's the only way space tourism is viable, right? So if they're looking at this as an investment, which I think they are. In space tourism, which I think is, is part of where they want to go, then they're looking at finding a way to make this available to everyone. Okay. And so Bezos going into space is a publicity stunt. Yes, but it's a publicity stunt for, Hey, I can do this and eventually you will be able to too. What we find historically is that that's the case. Okay. that does, there, there is some truth in that. In 1912, when the Titanic, you know, had its uh, its fatal encounter with an iceberg, Sailing in, that, in those types of first-class accommodations was something that only rich people can do. Now it's something that people who are more middle-class could do. In the 1930s, when Charles Lindbergh and Amelia Earhart, both of whom were extremely wealthy, okay, everybody likes to talk about Amelia Earhart, the aviatrix. She was from a very wealthy background, right? Today, people would be complaining about how she was 1%. Their circumnavigations of, you know, circumnavigating the globe in an airplane and, you know, flying across the Atlantic and all the things they did. Rich people's hobbies at the time. Now we do it as a matter of course, okay? The reality is that these brand new technologies are often advanced because really rich people think they're cool and go invest in them and then go try to do that. And then eventually it does come down to the rest of us. That is the way in which innovation tends to happen. And that happens in culture as well. Sometimes not always to, our, our, you know, to the positive, right? Critical race theory and equity education or whatever you want to call it. This started at elite universities, you know, elite prep schools and private schools for the wealthy. And it's now coming down. It's trickling down rapidly into the rest of society. And everybody's like, whoa, what is this? This is totally nuts. It's a thing that rich people like. Okay. And that's where it starts. So there does tend to be a trickle down in some ways, positive, some ways negative. I think the space trickle down though is positive. Why do I say that? Because there are a couple of fascinating things about the historical development of space. I want to talk about two aspects of space. One is from a national security perspective. And two is from a technology slash innovation perspective. And then maybe if we have time, we'll talk about a third, which is the environmental perspective. Okay. So let me start with national security, why it's important for us to be in space. We have this nice idea that space is never going to be militarized. When Donald Trump made the space force, everybody laughed. Some of us thought it was cool and still laughed. Not gonna lie, both both are both are true, and you know I like the fact that the Space Force is still not taking itself too seriously. You've got the Guardians, you've got the the logo that looks like it's it's Star Trekky, and you know it, I dig it. But the point being, people laughed about this idea of a Space Force, but here's the reality of national security concerns. Okay, Russia and China and near peer, if we're talking about near peer competition now with these sort of great powers. These are not folks that are going to be able to beat the United States in a head-on, conventional-type conflict. It's not going to happen, okay? Yes, the Chinese are focused on area access, area denial, or A2ED capacity in certain regions of the world, right? They're trying to, to be able to beat us in a specific area. But in the long run, they know full well that in a tr- traditional, conventional, conflict with the United States, this is not going to be a win for them. So how are they going to beat the United States? They're going to beat us by leapfrogging in one way or another, trying to get ahead of us in some sort of technological way. And one of the ways to do that is space superiority. Because if you obtain space superiority, then you can essentially, if you you know have the, the right type of equipment, the right type of, of weapons, not first of all, you can take out Anybody else's recon, because most of our reconnaissance ability, most of our ability to see what's happening comes from satellites, right? Imagine the possibility that uh, Chinese or Russian, either cyber attack or physical attack, were to take out all of our GPS satellites in the United States. If we don't have space superiority and space security, that's possible, right? GPS goes down, poof. The internet, portions of the internet go down, poof, right? Right? Our national security eyes are completely blinded. That's the kind of thing that equalizes a conflict, where one side has a technical advantage, but then the other side has space superiority. In the most extreme, you could have a situation where actually you drop a kinetic projectile on, you know, let's just say the Fifth Fleet or on a major American city or something like that. So allowing our adversaries to have space superiority is incredibly dangerous. For the same reason that it would be dangerous for one side to have all aircrafts and the other side to not have aircrafts can have the best tanks in the world. But if you don't have planes and the other guy has planes, they're going to bomb your tanks into the stone age. Same thing goes for space. Okay. It's just higher up. And so space superiority from national security perspective is important. Now, how does this tie back into what Bezos and the other guys are doing? Well, the more you actually have a presence in space, if it's a civilian presence, especially, and, you know, particularly if, you know. Grandma and grandpa are going into space for their 50 year anniversary, right? All of a sudden it becomes very, people realize, oh my gosh, we've got to make sure that there's security up there, right? We got to make sure that it's secure. We got to make sure that it's protected, right? So that reinforces the fact that you need space superiority in the same way that the United States is maintaining freedom of the seas. It's going to probably be the U.S. that's going to maintain the freedom of space and make sure that space doesn't get super militarized. By the way, the only way space doesn't get militarized is if the United States maintains space superiority, because we can essentially lay down a marker that says nobody else gets to play in our sandbox. Do we trust Russia or China to do that? Because, spoiler alert, I don't. All right, so that's the national security side of, of why I'm actually pleased about the this, this space aspect. Let's talk about innovation and technology. It's not as widely known as it should be. How many of the innovations we take for granted come from the space program? Everything from Velcro to the internet has some basis in the space program. There have been significant advantages, significant advancements in technology that have come out as byproducts of what we're trying to do with the space race. Cell phones, you know, I mentioned the internet, I mentioned Velcro. You know, we could talk about some of the increases in computing power that have happened. Any number of processes that are side benefits from this project of going into space. Okay. So now we can go into space, right? But what's next? We have to figure out how people are going to live up there, right? Because if you're going to space tourism, yeah, for initially, you're going to have people that are going to come up for a few minutes and they're going to come back down. But eventually people are going to say, I want to build a hotel in space. What about habitats so that people can stay for sort of a longer time? What about medical space tourism? So things like if there are certain conditions that are helped by time and zero gravity, et etc. et cetera, right? These are all possible applications, Then you're thinking about people surviving up there for longer periods of time. So what are things that you need for that? Number one, you need a source of energy. You need to be able to power all this stuff. Well, what's the most powerful source of energy out in space? It's the sun. A clean, perfectly renewable source of energy. So trying to figure out how to do this stuff in space, when you look at space-based solar, it's going to move forward our solar-powered industry dramatically because you're going to have much more efficient, it's going to be much easier to gather, and you're going to have to figure out how to convert that solar energy into all the different types of power that you'll need in space. But you could do that, right? You could, in theory, do that. Okay. What are the things you're going to need? You're going to need, and here's where really the money comes in, asteroids, right? So if you're going to build things in space, it's easier to start with, it's easier to get materials like out there than it is to ship stuff up a gravity well. All right. The, the cost of putting stuff up the well is much higher than the cost of doing it once it's already there, like finding finding something, for example, finding an asteroid out there, pulling that in. And you know, if you're going to try to make some sort of, I don't know, space station or whatever, doing it from that. Here's the other benefit to that. We know, or we, at least we strongly suspect, based on analyses that we've done, that a lot of these asteroids have rare earths. Rare earths, by the way, is an area where China and Russia potentially have a lot more than we do. So as Americans, if we can get access to some of these, again, we could even out some of the national security implications. If we don't find a way to get rare earths out of asteroids, we are probably looking at major geostrategic competition in areas with high rare earth deposits. But asteroids, because they're essentially, you know, little tiny planets, there's a pretty good chance that you'll have some of that in there, right? So that's that's another huge economic benefit. And you probably learn a lot from doing those types of asteroid mining, right? And then how are you going to feed people? Again, everything you have to send up from earth is more expensive. So the cheapest thing to do is to find a way to produce food in space. If you could find a way to grow crops in space, if you could find a way to make food in space, it's ultimately the only way to make it sustainable. If you're going to have a permanent spatial presence, which even for tourism is something that you kind of need. Now, why do I bring this one up? Because I think it ties into the last point that I want to bring up, which is the environmental. People are weirdly talking about the carbon footprint of Jeff Bezos going into space. And this is extremely short-term thinking. Because in the long run, the only way you're going to fix, if you think climate change is the most existential threat we have, look, let's be real about what's going to happen with climate change. You're not going to convince 95% of people to change their behavior overnight. You're, you're not going to be able to convince the vast majority of people that aren't already behaving in the way you want them to behave to behave the way you want them to behave. You're not going to be able to convince poor countries that are just now starting to climb up the ladder of development. Ah, oh, you should give that up in the name of the planet, right? White Western countries got to have this experience of development, but you guys, you know, you guys in the developing world, you got to wait your turn, right? Because we got this climate change problem. The, the answer to that you're, you're going to get from a lot of countries is a one-fingered salute. Okay, that's not going to happen. And government coercion is not really an answer. Uh, it's not really a sustainable answer. We've seen the limits of government coercion, just in terms of the response of COVID nineteen. You know, do you think it's going to work any better for any of this, this you know, counter climate stuff? So, what's your actual end game for doing any of this if you're an environmental activist slash you know climate change activist? Ultimately, the only way that you're ever going to see improvement on that issue, if it's your issue, is by advancing technology. That is it. It is a solution set with one solution that works and a bunch of other solutions that are proven policy failures, because every time they've been tried in any capacity, they have failed. So the only way, if you believe the climate crisis is an existential one, the only way you're getting out of it is innovating. And what is the most likely source of innovation? for this space. We talked about the ability to produce more food in space, which would ameliorate some of the the food problems. We talked about the idea of space-based solar power being clean energy. If you could find a way to get that back down to earth, poof, all of a sudden, energy shortage is not as much of a thing. But ultimately, one of the things that you could very easily see happen is, you know, if space, living in space becomes practical, there's a pretty good chance a lot of people are going to want to move off the planet. Why? More space, more opportunity, heart, you know, more ability to sort of live life the way you want to live it. And that also potentially ameliorates the problem. In other words, a lot of the problems that people who are focused on climate change are worried about would be solved if the space ventures were successful. And I think if you listen to some of the things that, that you know Musk and, and Bezos and others are saying, they kind of get that. If, they're, if you're looking at any kind of like geoengineering projects as well to sort of change climate that way, you know, p- reverse some of the effects of, of climate change, probably having a presence in space is important for that. Okay, so if you're really concerned about why aren't we spending more focus on, the, inter- on the, the environmental issues, you need to be thinking about space. I need to be thinking about it in a positive and constructive way rather than complaining about it because a billionaire is doing something and they're not doing things that you want them to do with their money. First of all, it's their money. Second of all, it's an investment, not charity. Third of all, that investment has huge benefits from a national security perspective, from a technology innovation perspective, and potentially from an environmental perspective as well. There's another aspect of this, which is that I think we've gotten used to cynicism as Americans, as Westerners. We've gotten used to the idea that we should be cynical about everything. That LOL, nothing matters and nothing is important. And, you know, that we can't just look at something and go, gosh, that's cool right? We've lost our, so one of the things that was sort of our, our defining characteristics as Americans as an aw shucks, isn't that cool? Gosh, we can, we can enter like a, a real faith in a real support of the idea of, of innovation, right? And to, to a certain extent, it's because the promise of technology has, has never really been fulfilled. I mean, if you watch science fiction in the 1950s, you know, rather than, than dealing with this kind of stuff, you'd think we'd have, you know, fairly traditional lifestyle, but with jetpack cars. And it's been the opposite of that, right? So there's a little bit of, you know, we've kind of been betrayed by it, by that sort of utopian mindset. But on the other hand, there were a lot of problems with the Industrial Revolution. There were a lot of problems with many different areas of technical pro- technological progress in the United States. And still, we understood the fact that innovating your way out of, out of problems is better than just sort of, you know, sitting back with this narcissistic cynicism. And I really do think that a lot of the cynicism right now is narcissistic. It's from people who are so focused on, you know, just whatever's going on in your social media feed that you're not looking up and looking around. Think about this. This is cool. Okay? This is a cool thing. People are going into space, individual, private individual, guy who graduated from high school saying, I want to help colonize space, just got to live out his dream. Yes, it was because he made a lot of money, but he made a lot of money by having an idea that nobody else had. And I got my beef with Amazon and all the other big tech companies. but. You know, there's something to be said for that. There's something fundamentally American about that. And I'm still somebody who believes that there is something fundamentally good about the American project, that it's worth defending and saving. And this is part of it because we can send people into space. That's pretty cool. We've got a lot of problems. We've got a lot of issues that need to be worked through. We need to rethink a lot of things, but we're still a country where a kid who grew up wanting to go to space can do it. That's awesome. That's a cool thing. This is cool. It might not be your dream. It might not be your thing. But I think we need to kind of kick a little bit of the cynicism to the curb, right? And, you know, look around and think about maybe the fact that do we still believe in this? Because I think we do when it comes down to it. I think as a country, we do. You ask most people, you get beneath the cynicism, you get beneath all the crap that's been going on. You ask most people, they still do believe, really, in this country, in what we've done, in what we fought for, in, in our values, in our hope for opportunity, for future, for taking the, our, ti- our timeless principles, applying them in the future, uh, and innovating our way out of problems. My hope, ultimately, maybe this is more of an existential thing and less of a, uh, a cultural thing is, or, or a, p- a political thing, maybe more cultural, is we need to start believing that things are possible again for this country. We need to start believing that we can do things as a country. There's, there's a lot of reasons right now to maybe not believe in that as much. But there's a lot more reasons to still believe in that. We are so focused on all the problems and all the fights that we're having over the vaccine. They haven't thought about like, we developed a brand new vaccine in less than a year, which nobody said they thought could be done. And it seems to have been by and large, fairly safe, fairly effective. And we've gotten it in the arms of over half of our population. That is unprecedented in history, period. It's amazing, right? And we just, we so relentlessly emphasize the polarized parts and the negative parts. It's like, yeah. Do I necessarily agree with everything Jeff Bezos has done in his life? No, but he went into space, and that's cool, and he's an American, and he's an American kid who got to live out his dreams, and that's a good thing, right? That's fundamentally a good thing. And so my hope is that we can start looking up and see the future and see future possibilities and see that things can change, not just for the worse, but for the better. You know, in 1980, when Ronald Reagan said it's morning in America again, They were coming through one of the worst decades in American history. You had not only economic stagnation, but inflation. They called it stagflation. You had um, domestic terrorism. New York crime rates in New York City were unbelievable compared to even what... People are talking about the crime spike right now. Crime in New York City in the 1970s was absolutely unbelievable. And people thought that the Japanese were about to eat our lunch permanently and that the United States was down and out for the count. Does all this sound familiar? Because it should. Because we're in the 2020s and we're hearing the exact same things. But the fundamentals of America are that even in the midst of our malaise, we can still do these kinds of things. We can come up with a new vaccine for a completely new virus that no one's ever seen before in less than a year. And then we can shoot a dude into space. Not but not on the basis of the government, but just on kind of the basis of he decided that he was going to do it. And he built through and you know worked through a company and did it and went to space. Like... <laughs> we can still do that kind of stuff. We can solve a lot of our problems. We just have to think about things in a little bit of a different way. Step back from the cynicism and maybe start believing in the country a little bit more. It doesn't necessarily mean believing the politicians or the experts or the people that you see on TV or the people on your social media feed, but look at the history, look at who we are, look at the resilience that we've shown to find a way to apply our principles in new ways, to new challenges, and to overcome old challenges that, that could very well have been insurmountable. That, I think, is a story that doesn't get told. It doesn't get told on the left, it doesn't get told on the right, and I don't know why. And that's what I immediately thought of when I heard Jeff Bezos is in space. Cool. That's great. Seems like a thing that we would do. Let's do more of it. All right, that's going to be a wrap for this episode. Please remember to rate and subscribe on your favorite podcast provider. Check out all of our awesome RSG degrees on the Robertson School website, and please send us any comments to our Facebook page at Blind Politics with Dr. Nolte. If you have episode concepts that you would like us to do, you can send it to us there. Tell your friends, tell your family members, tell the space nerds in your life, tell the people who could care less about space in your life to follow and subscribe to Blind Politics. Sorry for a bit of a slowdown this summer, I'm working to get back in the groove of, of getting these out more regularly, so you'll be hearing more from us hopefully in the not too distant future. And for Blind Politics, this is Dr. Nolte signing off. <music>